Derek Hunter Podcast, the 20th of February, 2024. Happy Tuesday to you. I keep forgetting that it's a, a leap year, so we get an extra day, or we're forced to suffer through one more day before the election, however you choose to look at it. You know, super positive. Anyway, welcome to the show. I'm Derek Hunter. I'm your host. Thank you for rating, reviewing on iTunes, sharing on social media, telling a friend, spreading the word. It's the only way we grow. That's all we've got going for us is you guys. So thank you so much for the use of your ears. Don't forget about patreon.com slash Derek Hunter podcast for all your extra stuff needed contests and weekend effort review and all that good stuff. Now let us get started with the program. Action-packed program, lots of stuff going on, bunch of things to get to. And it's one of those days where you sit there and you go, well, where do you start? There's a lot of really sort of big stories out there's the trucker boycott the biden administration is thinking about uh, maybe dialing back their environmental regular well, their uh, electric car regulations for a little bit at the behest of unions it doesn't matter what consumers want you notice that they don't give a damn what the public wants. union donors then suddenly they go oh wait a second we need to look into this the same way with this uh, i've written about it a couple of times i don't get what this what the problem is with u.s steel being sold to japan i don't get it if you've got a job and the company is sold do you you go know what i won't work for this new company or do you go well thank god because the alternative is we go bankrupt but instead i don't know I don't fully, I guess I kind of do fully understand because I experienced it when the auto industry, when I was a young kid, the auto industry was not doing so great. And it was around the time of like the movie Gung Ho and stuff like that. We're like, oh my God, Japan's coming in. They're ruining everything. They weren't. They were the only ones doing the, the auto business right. The American companies were screwing up. They'd become fat and complacent and lazy. And kept offering the public cars they didn't want or didn't need. Giant gas guzzlers at a time when gas was in short supply and therefore expensive. Like, that's not very good. And along comes Japan that not only gave you a car that got much better gas mileage, but it was cheaper. And it lasted longer, too. Like, all it was just an amazing thing. And and Detroit's response was, ah, they're not going to do anything about it. No, American public don't want that. Well, the American public maybe didn't like the style. I don't know. I didn't wasn't anywhere close to driving that. But they liked the price. And they liked the uh, affordability of driving the damn thing. So they said to hell with it. We're going to we're going to buy these things. And what happened then was and I remember it plain as day. They'd have Japanese cars parked, not many of them, like one or two parked at softball fields during the softball game, especially if there was a weekend tournament. And for a couple bucks, maybe five bucks, you could take five swings with a sledgehammer on it. And everybody was like, it was, I mean, how often do you get to hit a car with a sledgehammer? These were cars from back then, which were not, you know, this crumple zone stuff like an aluminum can or anything. So you'd whack it, and you'd see people whacking the hell out of it, and you'd get a little dent. 
you get to do some. It took a lot to do some damage to these cars. But people got their frustrations out of it. But their frustrations were misplaced. What are you mad about? I'm mad that this company's coming in and selling a better product at a better price that more people want. How dare they? Nobody ever said that, but that's actually what they were angry about. They didn't realize it at the time. Eventually, Detroit recognized that they were going to have to change the way they did things and adapt to the new reality like every other business. And they did. And they survived for the most part. But it was that it was really sort of xenophobic, anti-Japan anger. It was misdirected. It was wildly misdirected. It should have been directed towards the, the fat cat auto industry executives who'd done this, who'd been complacent, who just sat around and said, let them eat cake, let them eat cake. But it wasn't. The same thing with U.S. Steel being uh, purchased, Nippon Steel, I think it's called, out of Japan, offered $14.9 billion, if I remember correctly, to buy this company, which has been teetering on the verge of bankruptcy forever and probably will go bankrupt if it's not bought. And so you think, well, if you're working for U.S. Steel over there in western Pennsylvania, that's your your job is looking a little more secure. It was not looking very secure for the past few years. But instead, you get these politicians and union leaders, weirdly, probably some union members, unthinkingly doing whatever their union bosses tell them to do. But union leaders more so than union members going, this is unacceptable. You cannot sell this company to a foreign country. What do they think is going to happen? That Japan is going to come over here and scoop up physically? All the factories and all the plants and everything, there's like 20,000 plus people work for U.S. Steel. They're going to come over here and take it all and bring it overseas? You can't do that. That's impossible. That would be insane. So what do they think is going to happen? If there were, God forbid, some sort of emergency where we needed... U.S. Steel to produce something, say, you know, World War Three, just like in World War Two, when essentially Ford Motor Company became a tank company and General Motors became an airplane company, all this stuff. And they go, oh, well, Japan simply wouldn't do that. No, well, first of all, it's not Japan. It's a Japanese company. Secondly, they are located within the confines of the geographic location known as the continental United States of America. And therefore, they are subject to the Defense Production Act. Jessica, you know, the president of the United States in times of an emergency can go, hey, we need you to do basically commandeer the plant. We need you to retool to be able to make X, Y or Z because it's a national emergency. They can't go, wait a second, let me show you my driver's license. See, I'm a foreign national. You can't tell me. No, you're located in the United States of America. It's game on. And oh, by the way, if you refuse, we can just seize the company. So what do they think is going to happen? No, they go, well, the profits are going to go overseas. Well, any publicly traded company, the profits can go wherever the hell they want to go. All right. Stockholders ultimately get the profits. And which would you rather have? A America, U.S. based steel company manufacturing steel in the United States of America 
owned by a Japanese company or no jobs for those Americans. It seems like a pretty easy tap-and-putt as a thought exercise to me, but it's just not how the world works. The president has complained about it. Donald Trump has complained about it. The union leadership has complained about it. Union leadership, in fact, has, through somehow, I don't know, U.S. Steel stupidly agreed to this, they gave the union a, uh, not veto power, but a seat at the table when it comes to the sale of the company. They have a proxy. They have an option to buy the company on uh, their own should the company be attempted to be sold. And so they've given that proxy to a company called Cleveland something. or I can't remember what the Cleveland something. It's another steel company. And you go, why would you do that? Why would you give it? Well, Cleveland Cliffs. There it is. Because they don't want the company to be owned by a Japanese company. The union bosses don't. Why? I have no idea. They've already said, and they would have to be legally bound to honor the union contract. So it's not like the union is on the out. It's just straight up xenophobia, and they probably don't have any influence over in Japan themselves. So they just want political influence. But it's interesting to note that Cleveland Cliffs offered to buy U.S. Steel last year for $7.1 billion, which is less than half of what Nippon has offered. And the union is saying, no, no, not necessarily that deal, but we want Cleveland Cliffs, not Nippon. It's really just straight-up racism if you really get down to it. It's surprising that nobody on the left is out there protesting for this. But, of course, for them to protest this, they'd have to actually be principled. All the talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and racism and everything would have to actually mean something. It doesn't mean anything to these people. It is a means to an end, and therefore it can be ignored when necessary, when convenient or when inconvenient, I should say. And it's inconvenient in this sake. So they just kind of ignore it. They just go, la-di-da, whatever. Uh, let's let's keep the Asians out of here. Wait, isn't that right? No. Well, I guess technically to the left, Asians don't really count as minorities. As this country is fundamentally racist to its core, as we know from everything they tell us, it is also worthy of note that they discriminate wildly against Asians as far as education goes. And Whitey, evil Whitey, as a designated spokesman for evil Whitey, um, we somehow didn't create a system that kept all minorities down. Asians and people from India, they they got through. Not only did they get through, they did, they're doing better than we did. They're doing they're on income per capita, every unit of measure, education. They're doing way better than evil whitey is. It's a really horribly designed, wildly racist system, if you believe that it's wildly racist, because um, we lose at it, right? You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna rig a race, you're gonna make it so you win, not so you've at least got a shot at the podium, right? I mean, you're gonna take the risk. You're gonna go for the gold. You're not gonna go. You know what? If we get bronze, I think we're, we'll be okay if we just shoot for the bronze. Nobody does that. 
it's almost like the whole thing's a lie. It's a house of cards. But it goes back to the left simply doesn't care. They don't care what the peons think, what the little people think. It's ultimately what the bosses want. The bosses in the unions and therefore in politics don't like the idea of a Japanese company owning U.S. steel. It's right there in the name. Who cares? You know what? The company can either go out of business or continue to employ people and make steel. It's your choice. Your call. Go ahead. Make it. Which one do you want? Sadly, many of these people would go, you know what we can do without it? I'd rather not have a job than have a job under these circumstances, say the union bosses, who will be taken care of no matter what. Anyway, that's a hell of a tangent to go off on to talk about how the Biden administration simply doesn't give a damn what the people want in any event. This story from the Washington Post today. Biden administration weighs slowing the shift to electric vehicles, slowing the shift to electric vehicles, not now because the public can't afford them, because the public doesn't want them, because they're not ready. Nope. Facing pressure from Detroit and unions, the Environmental Protection Agency may delay tailpipe emissions rules aimed at speeding the EV transition. Now you say, wait a second. Now, if you just think about this logically and rationally, these rules, these are regulations. These are not something passed into law by Congress, by your designated representatives and signed by your elected president. These are regulations created by bureaucrats whose names you'll never know, who you'll never know who they are. And they've just decided with the push of the administration that they are going to make herd people, herd people, herd us into these cars. But they can't force us to buy them per se. They can just set standards that make buying anything else impossible, that make actually that make selling anything else impossible. And so they therefore end up getting the end result that they want without having to pass legislation and without having to really explain it. Nobody's going to have to run on this. If you look at what the left is trying, they're trying to find new and creative ways to obstruct and limit your Second Amendment rights, right? They can't just do a straight up gun ban everywhere. They'd love to. They've tried it. The courts say you can't do that. So what do they do? They tried all sorts of tactics. Hey, let's uh, let's deny it till this age and let's deny it. And the courts say you can't do these kind of restrictions. And so they're trying a new tactic. You can buy all the guns you want. But we're going to tax the hell out of them. And we're going to tax the hell out of ammunition. So if we double or triple the price of a firearm and we quadruple the cost of a bullet, we're not preventing you but in any way, shape, or form from being able to own those things. You just can't afford them. Right? It's different. They're not banned. There are stores. They're everywhere they can go in. And this this argument may work on a technicality. I wish the right had people as committed and creative as the left does when it comes to these things. But we don't. We have a bunch of we have a donor class who goes, oh, I'll give to this particular thing because I care about this one issue. 
Well, do you care about anything that doesn't directly involve your business? Do you care? Do you have principles whatsoever? The principle of wanting to stop. Do you have any of that? Like, nope, not really. Most of them don't. So they make a weapon. They make the ammunition for it so ridiculously expensive that ironically, not ironically at all, it's actually by design. The only people who can afford these things are the wealthy, their donor class, and the security that they themselves employ. It's weird, right? They can't say we are exempting certain people from these regulations, but ultimately from these taxes, but ultimately, or the, at least the impact of them, but ultimately what they're doing does just that. It's the poor living in cities controlled by Democrats who are already denied the right to own a gun as much as you possibly can in this country, who then, when they jump through all the hoops to be able to protect themselves and their property, find that standing right there is the person, the group, the government that had just set fire to all those hoops they jumped through, where they had to pay, you know, here's the licensing fee, here's the class you have to take, everything adds up, where it adds a, a weapon might be $500, but when you're done with it, it's $1,500, when you get to the finish line, and standing right there is that same government bureaucrat, can of gasoline, Bic lighter, saying, great, congratulations, you've made it all through, you can now buy this weapon, by the way, we've tripled the price, and if you want it to do anything, you're going to have to pay an even larger fortune to buy the ammunition. It would be like saying, yes, okay, you can have whatever kind of car you want. We're getting rid of the electric vehicle. We're going to leave. You don't have to buy an electric vehicle, but we're not going to sell gas anymore, or gas is $50 a gallon, or however you prefer to look at it. Well, what good is it? Well, nobody's stopping you from buying whatever kind of car you want, and you're free to drive it as much as you choose to. You just can't afford to. That's what they wanted to do with cars, in part. Well, now they're going, well, we might not be able to do this because the unions are recognizing that the American public is not going to buy these things. If you look at what Cuba is, the, the left always views it as quaint. They always describe it as quaint. Oh, it's so wonderful. It's quaint. The cars are right out of the 50s. The cars are out of the 50s because they haven't been able to afford cars since the 50s, since before Castro took over. They have to repair them because of various embargoes. They keep them running just barely because that's the only choice for an automobile they have. Period. End of story. It's not quaint. It's like, oh, your prison cell is very lovely. Okay, great. You got old cars. You can't speak your mind. You can't afford food. But boy, you get to drive around in that old Chevy. Isn't that cool? Of course, only left-wing tourists would ever think that way. But they are stuck in that time because they can't get anything else. They can't. It's too expensive. They can't afford it. They can't afford the upgrades because they're failed system. So what would happen in this country? You can outlaw the cars. No more gasoline cars for sale. But we've become a lot like Cuba. 
where we just go, all right, well, we'll repair what we have. We'll keep it going. We'll keep it going. We'll keep it going. You don't have to buy an, a, an electric vehicle, although eventually I suspect that the left would then outlaw repair of certain numbers of vehicles or institute a mandatory retirement mileage age or something for various cars. You think, I'm kidding. I'm not. These people are bound and determined to control everything you do down to the most minute detail. They don't give a damn about you. You're in the way of their utopia. They'll steamroll you the first chance they get. It's just important to remember that the government will find a way. Well, the left, well, well, government in general, will find a way to make you do what they want you to do without outlawing it, without mandating it. They just make the alternatives that they don't like unbearable. It's just untenable, not unbearable, although in some cases unbearable, but certainly untenable, unaffordable. Targeted taxes, targeted tax breaks. You sit there and you think, well, we have a a ridiculous thousand-page tax code. It's a monstrosity that nobody can understand. Why would they do that? Well, it's partially for the people who want special breaks. They they got to have something to sell. So there's that. They can sell that. But then there's also the control aspect of it. Incentivize certain things. Therefore, disincentivizing other things. See how that works? They want you to have kids. Having kids is a benefit to society. It not only makes, forget the fact that it makes your life better. It just, it's a, a benefit to society. So they give you a tax break. You get to keep more of your money. That also allows them to maintain the system that allows them to maintain control. See, if you come in with something ridiculously simple like a flat tax, ten per, let's just say using round numbers, 10%, 10% off the top, 10% flat tax. Well, then you go, well, what about my mortgage interest deduction? What about my child tax credit? What about this? What about that? You become addicted to all of these things. Forget the fact that you'd more than likely end up better off with a flat tax. You've gotten so used to the idea that you get to deduct these things. Okay, you get to deduct the child tax credit for 18 years. What do you do on year 19? Then suddenly you're a big proponent of the flat tax. Well, let's get rid of this. This is ridiculous. My taxes went up. Your taxes didn't go up. Your deductions went away. You no longer, you are past or your child or whatever is past the point of being useful to the government in a way. So you lose in that way. In a long enough timeline, everybody loses. The survival rate becomes zero. But if you think rationally about it, you'd never go down that road to begin with. You wouldn't give these people the power to have control over you. So the EPA is considering changing its rules. Who cares? The EPA wouldn't be able to set rules. Who the hell is the EPA? When is the next election for the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency? Never. Story from the Washington Post, the Environmental Protection Agency is considering relaxing one of its most significant climate change rules, tailpipe emissions limits for cars and trucks, by giving automakers more time to boost sales of electric vehicles, according to two people familiar with the matter. Why? 
What do they care what you drive? They don't really. It's not really having any control over the environment, over the planet. It's hilarious. The whole, it's, well, it's hilarious and it's sad that so many people believe that they could look at a data set that is about half of a thought of a blink of an eye and determine something from that that must be acted upon now to stop repercussions that will not occur until 100 years from now. It's a brilliant argument. You sit there and you say, well, they can't prove what they're saying. No, they can't, but they don't have to. They are the left. The argument is framed in such a way that you can't really disprove it, right? And that's the point. You can't disprove. They don't have to prove what they're saying. They make it so you can't disprove it. So in 100 years, it used to be they'd make 10-year predictions. In 10-year predictions, 10 years there'll be no snow. In 10 years, the ice caps will melt. In 10 years, this. In 10 years, that. And then all these 10-year periods passed and these things didn't happen. And so people said, hey, wait a second. That's not right. What the hell? And so you end up with a situation where things are, people are questioning. People are going, this doesn't seem to work. This doesn't seem to fit. Well, they said, we need to change that. Too many times have we made predictions that didn't come true. The whole, co- the coasts are supposed to be buried. The waters are supposed to rise. It's supposed to be, and it just hasn't happened. So they changed. They didn't. They didn't do what a normal person would do, and go, "Hey, wait a second. Chicken Little said the sky was falling. The boy who cried wolf said the wolf was." And those things didn't happen. Maybe we should relax a little bit. Maybe we were wrong. No, they were never right. They didn't want to be. Right. It didn't matter why they if they were right or wrong. They. It was a means to an end. And it's still the most uh, effective path of least resistance means to an end. So all they did was stop making 10-year predictions and started making 100-year predictions. The beauty of that is nobody's going to be around to remember that they got it wrong, right? Nobody's going to still be alive to go, hey, wait a second, shouldn't we be all mermen by now? So it was a brilliant argument. But that's, it doesn't make it any more rational, any more realistic. We've got 150 years worth of temperatures from around the the planet. At best, the reliability of those numbers leaves a lot to be desired for at least the first hundred of those years. We haven't had upper atmospheric temperature readings until the last 50 years years, that that is not enough to base anything on. And they place these thermometers around the country and around the world at airports and on rooftops in major metropolitan areas where heat is reflected, where heat is concentrated. It seems obvious that that would at least be a factor, and you might want to consider that but they did consider it. That's why they're there. It's the manipulation. And now we're ending up with these restrictions where we can have to buy new cars. We have to buy these cars. Why? People can't afford them. So if it's imperative, 
if it's as important as they say, if it is an existential threat and we have, you know, it's us or the gas-powered vehicle, we're all going to die, you would be insane. You would be a genocidal maniac to ease restrictions, would you not? If you really believed this stuff, and there will be people on the environmental activist left who believe this stuff, the grunts, the foot soldiers, going, oh my God, they're going to kill us all. But the people who are implementing this portray themselves as the same sort of zealots, the same sort of believers. Why would they be delaying the implementation of these things? if they really believed that this is the pathway to saving all of humanity. It's because they recognize that it is not. It is a pathway to control. It is a pathway to getting their agenda through. The more government control, the bigger the government, the bigger the need for government, the higher the justification is for taxes. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. We're implementing these new rules. These new rules cost money to implement. Therefore, We need to find new revenue streams to police these new regulations. Lather, rinse, repeat. Rather than mandating a rapid increase in electric vehicle sales in the coming years, the Post reports, the agency would delay these requirements until after 2030, the two people said. The individuals spoke on condition of anonymity because no final decision has been made. The rule will not be finalized until March at the earliest, usually around a holiday so that the leftists that... uh, will be most offended by this, will have the least likelihood of recognizing that they've been lied to and gamed their whole lives. The move comes as the Biden administration faces pressure on multiple fronts to weaken its electrification targets, in part because of slowing EV sales and also problems with public EV charging stations. In other words, there's not enough demand for these things. People can't afford $50,000 for a car. And even if they did, there's no way in God's green earth that people would be able to charge them. It's not just that you can't pull off the side of the road and plug in your car. It's that if everybody suddenly had an electric vehicle, the power grid would collapse. It can't handle that much load. We're not producing that much electricity at a time when we're demanding more things be electrified because it's green. We're taking nuclear power plants off the grid, nuclear power plants, the truly the only CO2 negative, no, no, not negative, but neutral, no CO2 production, green, clean energy we have. But because of a Jane Fonda movie from 1979 or whatever the hell it was, China Syndrome, they can't have that. It scares people. It's not actually the reason. It's because they don't want us. They don't like capitalism. Capitalism needs electricity to really get going. That's the way the world, that's why our enemies are exempted from all these regulations, from all these requirements. You've got to collapse capitalism here is what they ultimately want, so they can replace it. Nobody's going to vote for replacing a perfectly good system. It needs to be destroyed. 
The New York Times first reported that the EPA is mulling such a change, which would mark a major election year concession to automakers and labor unions, not to the will of the people who do not want this. It comes as President Biden walks a political tightrope by balancing two high-profile priorities, fighting climate change and championing labor rights. Where has he championed labor rights? So much of the left is just them declaring something to be so or declaring themselves to be something. And that's it, it going unchallenged. During a contentious strike last fall, the United Auto Workers sounded the alarm that a rapid shift to EVs could come at the expense of well-paying jobs. The union has been uh, wary of EVs because they generally require fewer workers to assemble than gasoline-powered vehicles and because many EV plants are being built in southern states less friendly to unions. If Democrats cared about blue-collar workers, the first part of that would matter. The second part wouldn't. Who cares where a job is physically located? And you wouldn't really care and shouldn't really care whether or not that person, that job is unionized. You shouldn't. You should just care, the government, that the job exists from the get-go. But you sit there and you say, well, why does it take fewer people? Well, Electric vehicles are assembled completely different. There's no engine. There's not a lot of there's a lot of moving parts, but not nearly as many as in the gasoline powered engine. Those things can be put together pretty easily through automation, through arms, robotic arms coming in and putting their piece in. It's a lot of plug and play stuff. They're nuts and bolts holding it together, but getting it together is plug and play. So you have a situation where there won't be that many people needed to make these cars. We knew this during the UAW strike. The UAW paid lip service to it, and then somebody got to the bosses and recognized that this isn't, this isn't what we really care about. And so they ignored it. It was part of the reason. It was weird. It was weird that the UAW would be striking against GM when it wasn't GM that was imposing these restrictions. Yet they still endorse Democrats. The reason they fear for their jobs is what Democrats are pushing, not what, UA, not what GM, Chrysler, Ford are pushing. GM, Chrysler, and Ford, sure, they love the virtue signaling aspect of it, but in general, they, don't, they just want to sell cars ultimately. But they can't go against the Democrats because that's really why these trade unions still exist. In April, the EPA issued a proposed rule that called for EVs to account for 67% of all new passenger car and light truck sales by 2032. Isn't that interesting? The EPA issued proposed rule. Again, when was that EPA election? Weeks later, UAW President Sean Fain wrote that the union was withholding its endorsement of Biden's reelection campaign over concerns with electric vehicle transitions. In January, the EPA sent the final rule to the White House for interagency review. 
Soon after, the UAW endorsed Biden at its annual legislative conference in Washington. Now, don't you love that? We're going to withhold our endorsement because you might propose or impose rules that will devastate our industry. Nothing changed except the UAW, except time had passed and the UAW said, okay, we support you. We support you. And now suddenly the Biden administration is maybe saying we're going to slow it down. Not that they're not going to do it. They're going to slow it down. So much of what our government does is a game of kick the can. They just pretend that they're addressing something when realistically all they're doing is making it so somebody else down the road, after the people involved are long since retired or dead, will have to deal with it. Social Security, Medicare, the coming crush of unfunded liabilities, the same damn thing. Oh, well, we could change the retirement age from 67 to 71, and that will save Social Security for another generation. Okay, it's still collapsing. The fundamental structure of the program is that of a Ponzi scheme. It has nothing to do with the age of retirement. It's a Ponzi scheme. That's the problem. You can make the retirement age to qualify for Social Security 110. It wouldn't change the fact that it's a Ponzi scheme. Just nobody would be collecting on it yet. Bernie Madoff was wildly successful until people started collecting on his Ponzi scheme. When people were just putting money in, it worked beautifully. It's when people started getting money out. Eventually, our life expectancy, people will start to live that long, and then you'll end up having the same damn problem because it's the fundamental underlining existence of the program, the design of the program that is the problem. They don't care. They don't care. It is about control. They can make you do certain things. If you have an electric vehicle, the road trip on long term, dead. You know, I by spring break, we got in the car and we just drove south in high school. We just drove south. We went to as far south as Georgia. We went to Tennessee. We were all over the place driving to all the tourist traps just having fun. Me, my friend Bill, my friend Mark. If we'd have had, it was, I forget what it was, a Renault or something like that, whatever piece of junk Bill's car Bill had. His dad owned a used car lot, so it was a relatively new piece of junk car. We couldn't do that. You could do it, but you'd do a lot less. You can go 300 miles, and then you've got to wait for an hour, two hours, whatever. They always say, well, you can get a charge. You can get a uh, 50% charge in 20 minutes or whatever. I'm just making the numbers. I'm like, okay, but that's great. What if I want to go 500 miles, all right? I, I can either stop every 100 miles because I got a 50% charge or a 20% or whatever in, in, in 20 minutes and just keep stopping constantly, or I can get a gasoline-powered vehicle and drive for as long as I can, go to another gas station and be out of there inside of five minutes with a bag of Doritos and not a care in the world. Well, the left doesn't want you to not have a care in the world. The left doesn't want you to have freedom of movement. The left doesn't want you to make those decisions for yourselves. They want it. They've got it. They control it. You're a pawn. You're, a, you're an inconvenience. You are an obstacle standing between them and their will. 
And sadly, half the country will vote for this again in the fall. That's the terrifying part. All right, so since we're talking about the uh, left screwing over blue-collar workers, it really is amazing because we're living through a time when – one of the things that drives me absolutely nuts, and I, I'll write about this someday – I don't know when, and I don't know if it'll ha- if it'll be for Town Hall or if it'll be The Hill. It'll probably be for The Hill because if I write it at Town Hall... See, my friend Kurt Schlichter, he just wrote something about elites this, elites that. And um, I want to be critical of that, not of Kurt, but of the whole concept. And if I write it now and put it in Town Hall, it'll be viewed as being critical of Kurt, and I don't want to be critical of Kurt. But it is... One of those things, it's bigger than any individual. It's all of these people. They're all sitting around. The, the elites, the establishment, both left and right. The elites, the establishment. Oh, my goodness. It's this. It's She's my daughter. She's my, my uh, sister. She's my daughter. She's my daughter and my sister. The elites. There's a Chinatown reference for you, Jake. But uh, it is meaningless words. Meaning that you might as well say that, that cloud is is coming after you. That it carries about as much weight. It matters about as much. A cloud is coming to get me. What do I mean? A cloud's coming. It's clouds coming to get you. These elites, they're out to get you. You're against the establishment. I hate to break it to you, but I have not heard anybody ever use either of those words or any of the other words that are similar that you might find in the thesaurus relative to those words, who is not a member of the, quote, elite or the establishment in one way or another. I'm sorry, but it's just true. I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. I look forward to voting for Donald Trump. But the idea that Trump supporters talk about how Donald Trump is against the establishment is ridiculous. Donald Trump is the establishment. Okay, you know, it's just like to say he's not a he's not a, what I like about him is he's not a politician. Well, he's been president of the United States. That's the ultimate politician. I'm sorry, he was a businessman. Yep, he's got that over most of the other politicians. But he, once you become elected president of the United States, you're a politician. It doesn't really. You don't have to like it. You don't have to like it. You can hate lawyers, man. You hate lawyers. God, lawyers are scum. But once you graduate law school and pass the bar, you're a lawyer. No, no, I'm a justice practitioner. No, you're a lawyer. Okay, you can call it whatever you want. You're a lawyer. The people who are running around talking about the elites want to do this and the elites want to do that are about as elite as it comes. They're fabulously wealthy. They have the ear of powerful people, ear of elected officials. They donate to elected officials. They're oftentimes in the rooms with elected officials. They help set opinions. And therefore, the elected officials sort of bow and kowtow to them a little bit. That is the very definition of elite. Just like all the whining and blaming, the 1%, the 1%, the wealthy, this and the other thing. Doesn't... There's a lot of people in the 1%. You think, well, these millionaires and billionaires, I think you had to make like $200,000 to be part of the 1%. Because there's a hell of a lot. This is why I always point out people sitting around going, we need to tax the wealthy. We need to tax the... Why do we need to tax? Because the wealthy, blah, blah, blah. And they say, you know, you realize that 
there's a hell of a lot more, like exponentially a hell of a lot more people in the middle class than there are in the, the wealthy, the 1%, right? You take all the money from – you take everything that Elon Musk has. Let's just say he's worth $150 billion. I don't know what he's worth. He's somewhere in that neighborhood. But net worth, you take it all. You take it all. You, God, yeah, we got him. We soaked the rich and you get to feel really good about yourself for about 15 days. Then you've blown, and that's without considering the fact that, you know, every piece of stock, every stock certificate that Elon Musk owns would immediately collapse the second the government just seized all of his wealth. It would just collapse. But we're pretending that Tesla and SpaceX and all that would maintain their value, and it is, and it's $150 billion. You get nine, ten days of government operation, I think. Last time I checked, the government was spending about $15 billion a day. It's probably more than that now with the interest and the debt service and all that. But we're just making numbers up. We get to control everything. So you got, we'll say generously, 10 days of government operation. And then you're done. And what do you do? Elon Musk. Where's Elon Musk? Elon Musk is flat broke. You don't get to go back to the Elon Musk well and go, hey, where's another $150 billion, Elon Musk? You you took everything he's worth. It's gone. So then you hunt down baldy, bicep bulging, inflated, surgically enhanced fiance Jeff Bezos. And you go, we're going to need your $150 billion. And we got it. And like, we'll take his super yacht and we'll take all the Amazon stock. And we're going to take his houses. And oh, man, we stuck it to him. We did it. And then 10 days later, where are you? You've got nothing. You can't go back to Bezos or Musk. They're gone. So you work your way down to Buffett and Gates and all the other names you know and everybody else in the United States who has the money. And sooner or later, and emphasis on the sooner, you run out of those people. The pool of those people is not very deep. But the deep end of the pool still, you know, the, the shallow end is running out of water. The water level is going down. The deep end of the pool, there's still plenty of water in there. No individual has a whole lot of money. But there's a whole lot of individuals. And that's why when you say, we're going to tax, we're gonna, we need to raise taxes to pay for Eventually, they always start off with, we're going to get them. We're going to get those rich. We're going to get them. Stink them. Stinkers. Stink. And then suddenly, you know, Bernie Sanders running around, we need to tax millionaires and billionaires. He stopped talking about taxing millionaires once he became one. Now we need to tax the billionaire class. There ain't enough of them. Then they raise taxes on the middle class. They raise taxes on people making $100,000. Why? Because there's a hell of a lot more of them. You cast that wide of a net, you're going to get a lot more revenue because there's a lot of people who make a hundred to uh, I don't know nine hundred thousand dollars somewhere. They make a lot of there's a lot of people do that. Fewer people making twenty million dollars a year. Fewer still making a hundred million dollars a year. So the further down you go, and you go, wait a second, how huh? that's not possible? I thought we were taxing the rich. Well, rich is kind of a relative term. Kind of is. I remember growing up thinking my friend's uh, George's family was rich. Why? Because they owned a couple of commercial buildings that were connected to their house. And they were rich relative to us, but they weren't rich. They just had steadier income, more guaranteed income. 
They had assets. We didn't have assets. So when we played poker for change, a $10 bet would have me going, that's, I'm wipe, I'll wipe out if I lose this hand. I can't. I got. I had. To, they could always bet me into folding, because I couldn't afford a ten dollar bet, whereas they could afford a twenty dollar bet. And to me, at the time, that was rich, because <laughs> I couldn't afford a ten dollar bet. I'm paying for gas and cigarettes with change, and they're using money that folds. Well, they might have had two twenties. It was more than me because it was relative. They were rich compared to me. It's like being the richest person in your orphanage. You're still an orphan. I remember one time, hysterically, apropos of nothing except that it makes the point here, I was talking with Tucker Carlson in the office, and I forget what we were talking. He was always he's always very interested in, in people's lives and, and their life stories and things. And we were talking about growing up, and I was giving him the you know the stories of when I grew up, and he said, you know, I didn't I didn't grow up rich. And uh, I think he said either. I didn't grow up rich either. And I, I looked at him and I said, Tucker, you might have been the poorest kid in your boarding school in Connecticut, but you were not Oliver Twist. Like there's, no, he grew up in San Diego, but was sent to went to boarding school in Connecticut, like one of the most elite boarding. His family had money, right? It was not some hard scramble story. And he goes, Oh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. He recognized it right away and back down. It's all relative. Everything is relative. But if you're going to raise money, see, if you're poor, rich is anybody who's got more money than you. And if you're inclined to think the government should go after these people, then you're go after anybody else. Go ahead, raise taxes on them so I can get benefits. Sort of the sickness of the progressive mindset that creeps into people's heads. You don't realize that sooner or later, provided you're not lazy or dumb, you will move up the income stream. So it's like, let's get, when I was a kid, $50,000 seems like, seemed like an un, unattainable dream. And so if you wanted to raise taxes on somebody making $50,000 a year or more, like, go oh, get those rich SOBs. Who the hell are they? Well, eventually you're going to make that money, provided you have any ambition whatsoever. Whether or not you can afford to live on it is depends on the matter of geography. But you're going to get there and you're going to realize, A, you were wrong all along. And B, now you stepped into the bear trap that you helped set for everybody who makes that income and above. People don't think about the repercussions of their actions. We're a bunch of Veruca salts who want our golden goose and we want it now. We don't really care what the consequences are. Well, every once in a while, something comes along where the consequences are real and brought home in a real way. This trucker boycott in New York City, I don't know that it's going to come to anything, but it certainly could. I'm watching a whole bunch of leftists on social media poo-poo the idea of it mattering, laughing at these truckers for daring to do anything. Remember, truckers, until the government in Canada illegally invoked emergency powers to seize the bank accounts of truckers protesting vaccine mandates and imprisoned them illegally. The Supreme Court up in Canada has ruled. It's not me just declaring this. Uh, They were uh, 
They'd terrified the country. They'd shut down the capital of Ottawa. They had an impact. That's why the government reacted. They didn't. It was about politics. They didn't want to even meet with them. Trudeau would not meet with them. They're terrorists, blah, 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 would not meet with them. He used the power of government to squash them in a very fascistic way while claiming to be fighting fascism. Silencing dissent is not, well, it is fascism. But in the United States, when it comes to New York, it'll be interesting to see if truckers, A, do pick up this cause, and B, how quickly and how the government reacts in any way if they do. I want you to listen. This guy is a guy who calls himself Trucker Jake on social media. He's got a big social media following. The good dude's pretty ripped. He's an older dude, but he's he's in really good shape. And he's talking about this trucker boycott of New York City. And he gives a little bit of a history lesson for those people out there who are poo-pooing the idea that Trucker, first of all, you've got to be wildly stupid to go, ah, the truckers, they think they can stop. The, you don't realize how much stuff moves by truck in this country. You have no idea how much stuff moves by truck in this country. And if that stuff stops moving by truck in this country, how quickly we'd be screwed. All right. The fact that they didn't stop doing their jobs when diesel fuel got to be so high is a testament to their moral character and their desire to not hurt this country. They got hurt while protecting this country. So you can go and poo-poo them all you want, but uh, Trucker Jake here has a bit of a history lesson for you about the power and the ability of truck boycotts. Good morning, Patriots. This is Trucker Jake. There's talk of a trucker boycott of the city of New York to protest the persecution of President Trump. Now, liberals seem to think that this is a pretty funny idea. Let me tell you a quick story. A couple years ago, a Colorado trucker was involved in a terrible accident, loss of life. It was tragic. The Colorado judge sentenced that trucker to 110 years in prison. Now, you decide for yourself whether or not he deserved that prison sentence, but when truck drivers from around America heard about that sentence, they organized a boycott against the state of Colorado. And within a month, they brought the state of Colorado to its knees. That judge resentenced that trucker from 110 years to 10 years in prison. The point is, MAGA patriots make this country run. Liberals, they make our coffee. This is Trucker Jake. God bless President Trump. God bless MAGA America. God bless our truckers. Y'all have a blessed day. <laughs> I love that. Anyway, we make the country work. Liberals make our coffees. That's true. That's true. So I, I looked, I, I was vaguely, for, I sort of remember this 110-year thing about a trucker. So I looked it up. Fox News story. Uh, it's a rehash of it. It's from today. But it's a group of truck drivers who support President Trump have announced, blah, blah, blah. The uh, court case that he's referring to was, in fact, about a, a horrible accident that led to death. And the truck driver was relatively new. And so the truck driver was sentenced to 110 years, well beyond any 
previous any sort of benchmark any anything really related to common sense sentencing the truck driver said this is ridiculous you're setting a precedent now that's going to screw us coming forward it wasn't about we must stand with this truck driver because this truck driver is all no it was this truck driver could be any of us this truck driver could absolutely be any of us and we cannot have a ruling like this is ridiculous and so they refused to drive in the state. Because if you go in the state and you go, hey, suddenly you drive in the state and something happens, something goes sideways. Yes, the truck driver in the other case was responsible for it. However, it's a, not that big of a stretch to go from a situation where the truck driver is not responsible for it or is responsible for it, to one where he is not responsible for it, but the precedent has been set, and you say, all right, well, we're going to sentence this person to an extended stay in a federal penitentiary. It becomes worrisome. It's the concept that um, people are worried about. Cloud Trucks has the story. Colorado trucking boycott occurred during the last week of December 2021 in response to the sentencing of truck driver Rogel Aguilera Medeiros to 110 years in prison. He had been found guilty on 27 charges, including four negligent homicide charges and multiple first-degree assault and first-degree attempted assault charges stemming from an April 25th and 2019 collision on I-70 west of Denver. It goes into the specifics of it. But again, it wasn't about him. It was about the concept. Truck drivers said, well, you can sentence us to... Look, they weren't saying he didn't deserve any jail time at all. They were saying that 110 years was ridiculous. Having sentences run consecutively rather than concurrently was different. So the truckers started boycotting. And it says, uh, the severity of the stance imposed upon Aguilera Madero's caused an immediate backlash in the Latino and trucking communities. The argument was made by millions of individuals that the punishment was excessive in relation to the crime. One case in particular stood out in contrast to Aguilera Madero's that of Ethan Couch, a teenager driving under the influence of alcohol who killed four people rather than cooperate with authorities as Aguilera Madero had, Couch fled the country. When he returned, he was sentenced to 10 years of probation. The disparity between the sentences was significant, a significant argument used by those who supported a fairer sentence for Aguilera Madero's. It is interesting to note that even the judge in the Aguilera Madero's case was opposed to the 110-year sentence, although he said his hands were tied. He ultimately lowered the sentence to 10 years after the boycott had kicked in. It didn't last more than a month. Keep that in mind. People have the ability to stand up to this Leviathan, to these monsters. They just have to be aware of what they're standing up for. And sadly, so much of what is going on in our government, it fits, pits people against one another. Oh, it's the elites. The il is this truck driver an elite? No, he's not an elite. Politicians are politicians. Elites are whatever. It's just like lobbyists. What am I... 
one of my favorite things I've come up with is my definition of lobbyist, because it's always used in a negative term. A lobbyist is somebody who advocates for a political position with which you disagree. Otherwise, they're just advocates, right? They're activists. But if they, they're lobbyists, lobbyists is a dirty word. Lobby. Well, the Constitution guarantees the right to petition the government to redress your grievances. That legalizes, authorizes, protects the concept of lobbying government. The real problem is the government does so much that so many people lobby it to get a piece of the action. A government that was limited by the Constitution wouldn't really have any lobbyists or barely any lobbyists. But it's all about the definition of terms and the framing of it and how they're used to manipulate people. You hear elites and you immediately go, ew. You hear establishment and you immediately go, ew. Well, if you're an elected member of Congress, if you're a president of the United States, if you are a commentator with a footprint following on social media, you are a part of the establishment. You can use it in a negative, hold your nose way all you want. It's not going to change the reality that it's you who stinks. I want to shift gears a little bit here and just report on because eventually the truth comes out. Now, the government, the power, the elite, the establishment, they can they have a lot of rugs, a lot of area rugs all around the place they can and a lot of brooms to sweep things under those rugs. But sooner or later there's the reckoning. I remember when my mom and dad used to come and visit. I'd clean. If like a sibling came to visit, I'd clean. But if my mom and dad came to visit, I'd really clean. You know the difference. You dust around something or you move something to dust. My siblings, I dusted around things. Friends, I dusted around. Well, sometimes I didn't even bother to dust. But if I did dust, I dusted around things. My mom, particular, my dad coming out. My dad wouldn't move stuff. My mom would notice. She would. She. My mom had the ability. She didn't have to move the stuff to know. She could recognize that micro, little, tiny bit of dust around the thing that wasn't moved that you just can't get unless you use like a leaf blower. So I'd have to move like books. I had a in my crummy apartment in Baltimore. I had a an old fireplace. It it didn't work anymore. It was closed up. It was sealed up. I had a, a Darth Vader helmet I kept in the fireplace. And uh, there was a mantle around it, though. So I had a bunch of books around the mantle. And if my parents were coming to visit, I'd have to take the books off the mantle and dust the mantle with pledge, no less. It was a wood mantle. And then I'd put the books back up there. I'd even probably dust the books, maybe even vacuum the tops of the books. And you got, you know, me and bunch of other people in and out of that apartment and cats in there. Stuff gets all over everything. So you got to dust and you got to vacuum. Anyway, she would, I had to do it because she would notice. She would, eventually everything gets noticed. Eventually the truth comes out because there was always something I didn't move, either because of time or laziness. And she wouldn't say it. I just knew that she knew it. And it was like, part of the thing was I wanted to I wanted to not get the suspicion that she suspected that I didn't dust one particular, the DVDs or whatever it was. But eventually things come out. The truth comes out. The reality 
hits us all, whether it's with a particular person you've been trying to hide it for or the next one. It doesn't matter. They try to hide, you try to hide, we all try to hide something, and it just doesn't work out very long. We all wear slimming clothing, and that doesn't fool anybody. Hey, it's, that sweater's 15 sizes too big. I used, to, I used to be known as sweater guy in the mall I worked in for that very same reason. Like, nobody will notice that I put on a few pounds. Well, it's 90 degrees outside and you're wearing a sweater. Dude. That's a little bit weird, don't you think? Anyway, the latest thing to come out slowly, not in a hurry and not out completely, we're just getting the first few salvos, is the long-term impacts or the even short-term impacts, the, the impacts of the COVID vaccine. Now, I want to preface this by saying that the vast majority of people are fine and will be fine. But we weren't sold that this will be fine for most people. We were sold that this was what this was the cure for what ails you. This is the way to put this horrible disease, which the mortality rate was significantly lower than anybody ever admitted. And uh, really, you had to have a comorbidity to go along with it. There were very few people. If any, I don't even know of any, I mean, not that I've been looking, but I haven't heard of a single case of somebody who was otherwise healthy with no pre-existing conditions who passed away with COVID. A lot of people died with COVID and not from COVID. So you, uh, there's still a lot to come on this, but this from Bloomberg is a little bit more peek behind the curtain. Vaccines that protect against severe illnesses, death, and lingering long COVID symptoms from a coronavirus infection were linked to small increases in neurological blood and heart-related conditions in the largest global vaccine safety study to date. Hmm. The rare events identified early in the pandemic included higher risk of heart-related inflammation from the mRNA shots by Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna Incorporated, and an increased risk of a type of blood clot in the brain after immunization with viral vector vaccines, such as the one developed by the University of Oxford and made by AstraZeneca. The viral vector jabs were also tied to an increase in risk of Guillain-Barre syndrome, a neurological disorder in which the immune system mistakenly attacks the peripheral nervous system. More than 13.5 billion doses of COVID vaccines have been administered globally, globally over the past three years, saving over one million lives in Europe alone. See, they, they won't give up the lie. Not for a while, but they can't prove that those lies were saved. It's a statistical estimate, but you can't disprove it. That's the important thing. You can't disprove it. I would argue, and it's always been my belief, that because they're like, oh, the mutations, the thing is, by the time they got the, the shot, which it may well have been effective against the original strain, because that's what they were working with, the virus had mutated. And I don't think the virus is, the virus is mutating at an alarming rate. I don't think that the virus was necessarily mutating. I believe that nature tends to revert back to its natural state, to itself. And the 
coronavirus, COVID-19 virus, was manufactured in a lab by China in China for what it maybe it was for gain of function research. Maybe it was to possibly fend off something in the future. Maybe it was for a weapon, whatever it was. But it had the uh, appendages attached to it that made it able to penetrate human cells. But they weren't meant to be there. You could sew a forearm to somebody's head, theoretically, but it's not meant to be there. Eventually, it would fall off. Eventually, as the virus repro- – that's a crude example, but you get the point. As the virus continually reproduced, because that's what viruses do. They invade a cell, they reproduce, and then kill the cell. The cell bursts, and then there's a whole bunch of new viruses out there. As it reproduces, it was reverting back to its natural state, which was not harmful to human beings which makes a whole bunch of people sifting through bat excrement in in caves in China really weird and unnecessary and dangerous and stupid. But that's beside the point. The ability to impact human beings became lessened as what was done to manipulate this virus was slowly bred out of it as it was reverting back to its natural state. That's why each successive variant after maybe Delta or Omicron, I can't remember the order of it, but after that, things became less, even less deadly, right? That's my explanation for it. It wasn't anything to do with the shots. But the shots are, of course, going to have negative repercussions for some people. You put an aspirin on the table in front of 100 different people and everybody takes an aspirin, there's a decent chance that maybe not 100, 1,000, that one of them is going to die or have some sort of adverse reaction to it, some swelling. And as a kid, when I was 15 years old, maybe 16 years old, I had an adverse reaction to what they thought was aspirin. My hands swelled up and my face swelled up one day. And the next day, those were fine. And my... uh, My feet had swelled up. And then after that, it was fine. I think I threw up too. But I also had Arby's that same day. Now, I could have had an adverse reaction to Arby's and threw up because of the beef and cheddar. Whatever it was, they told me, well, don't take any. You don't need to take aspirin. Don't take any aspirin. Just avoid aspirin. In a sense, I've taken things and then looked at it and said, aspirin-sensitive patients shouldn't take this and go, oh, oops, and haven't had an adverse reaction to it. But there is going to be people who have adverse reaction to things. I don't think that the I'm not of the belief that this was a massive experiment designed to try and kill as many people as humanly possible, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not saying there's a black helicopter outside this room right now waiting to catch me. No. But the alternative was not a nuanced answer to they're all trying to kill us or control us with this shot and there's little microchips and things in there and nanites and everything designed to control. The alternative was there are no adverse effects. It's nothing but positive. It's a wonderful thing. It's a glass of clean water. Nobody's allergic to it. It is wonder- Everybody needs it. It is a necessity for life. That was always garbage. The truth, as is always the case, really, is somewhere in between, way in between in these cases because both extremes were so extreme. But it's interesting that these studies are now starting to be done 
and we'll slowly learn that some people, healthy people, did die because they had an allergic reaction or whatever kind of reaction to these shots. Whether or not that number of people is greater than the number of people who actually literally died from COVID, we don't know. And we'll probably never know. But it is a question we should ask and an answer we should strive to figure out because this will happen again, either in nature as it did back in 1918 or in a lab as it did back in 2019. It will happen again. The more we can learn from it, the better off we'll be and the better we'll handle it next time. Because right now there's two groups of people who will one group will blindly obey whatever it is so-called people with titles and experts declare to be no matter how irrational or contradictory to their previous statements those things are. And there are other people who will never, ever under any circumstances believe anybody in a position of authority no matter what they say. Neither is particularly good. Neither is particularly healthy. Both will end up screwing over a lot of people. And uh, that's the real problem. Nobody has any credibility because they all insist they are the absolute authority. Neither are. All right, so let's get into our senile president just for a second here because this little mon- newsbusters, good Lord, if you don't know newsbusters, you need to pay attention to Newsbusters. They are a, a media research center. They cover the media. They watch. You, you can't watch all this stuff. You'd kill yourself. You'd go crazy. You'd jump off a bridge. You'd drink yourself into a Kennedy stupor. But they do it because they're professionals. And, and not the Kennedy stupor thing. Nobody's that kind of professional. But they put together a little montage of the media defending Joe Biden against allegations that he's, you know, lost a step. Joe Biden hasn't lost a step. He's lost a flight of stairs. He has lost several floors. He has lost quite a bit. But they uh, they don't care. They'll never let the facts stand in the way of a good story or reality stand in the way of an agenda item. They simply do not give a damn. So this little montage here is... A perfect example. It could have gone on for five hours. I think it goes on for a minute and a half of these leftists in the media insisting, hey, uh, Joe Biden is the same age as Donald Trump, but just a couple years older, blah, blah, blah. And like, yes, he is. But there's a big difference, right? Chronologically, they are close in age. They are similar in age. Realistically, mentally, they are nowhere near the same. And that's what's important. There are lots of people. By the way, Joe Biden was never particularly bright. You have to remember that Joe Biden was dumb his whole life. He's only been senile for about five or six years or getting senile for about five or six years. They don't want to acknowledge either any of these people that you're about to hear, although in private, I guarantee you they would because it is the worst kept secret in all of Washington back when he was a United States senator that Joe Biden is an opportunist, is unprincipled, and not very bright. But now he's a brilliant man who is still in command of all of his faculties, according to these media types.
If you're concerned about Joe Biden's age, you, you, you probably don't know Joe Biden. Biden is actually in good shape. Right. Mentally, he's quite acute. Any aide who engages with him or reporters, we can see this. The gears of his mind are working. The right wing media has so fixated on Biden and Biden purportedly having cognitive issues. It's not just making an issue of Biden's age. It's, it's lying. It's saying he's senile, it's saying he's demented, saying he's out of it. Russian television has been filled with speculation about President Biden's age, about his mental state of mind. That's an issue uh, pushed by uh, uh, right-wing media, but it's not correct. Yeah, Republicans on the, on the other side have spent four years almost kind of weaponizing Biden's age against him. Trump is not that much younger than him. Biden is just a couple of years older than Donald Trump. Why, do, why so much attention on Biden's age? Trump isn't much younger. This whole vein is, is really, really unseemly. I mean, ageism. I'm going to say quite bluntly, there is some ageism going on here. Yeah, I think there is some ageism going on. Biden's personal physician wrote that he, quote, remains a healthy, vigorous 80-year-old male. He is a healthy, vigorous 80-year-old male. He had a good physical. His doctor says he's vigorous. The reality is nothing like the, the, the dystopian picture that the Republicans are trying to paint of, of this senile, doddering uh, president. And, and he's as sharp as a tack. <laughs> Don't you love it? He's a sharp uh, attack. Yeah, um, what are you sticking tacks into? What? Which end of the tack are you talking about? What do you... What is, uh, sharp as attack. They're about the same. There's a huge difference. There's a huge difference between <laughs> Lizzo and... Taylor Swift's health status, right? Wouldn't you say? If you're going, you know what? You can have the health of Lizzo, a little bit on the plus size, put it mildly, or Taylor Swift. Not exactly a waif, but, you know, fit. Which one would you go? Would you go, well, they're about the same age. And that's all that matters. That's the only factor that matters is they are about the same age. Yeah, um... Chris Farley was about the same age as Taylor Swift. You go, okay, which at at thirty four years old, which person's health would you rather have, Taylor Swift or Chris Farley or John Candy? And you go, oh, uh, gee, I don't know. Um, you know the answer. Liberals don't want to answer it, but you know the answer. So you go, well, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are about the same age. They are <clears throat> about, it's four years difference, but about the same age, roughly the same age. But which one seems to be aware of the circumstances of the world around them a little bit more than that? You can sit there and you can dislike what Donald Trump says. You can cringe at what Donald Trump says. You can love what Donald Trump says. But you recognize that Donald Trump is saying it. It is his opinion. It is a conclusion he has drawn. Joe Biden, you listened to him and you go, um, what the hell was that? What is it? What, he's talking about beer and you got the lakes and you do that, that, and the other. Huh? When he's introducing Javier Becerra, who's a former member of Congress, former Attorney General of the state of California, as his nominee for Health and Human Services, 
HHS secretary. He refers to my good friend, I've known him for years, Javier Bacaria. Have you met him? You've known him for years. Have you met him? Do you have any idea what the hell you're talking about, Mr. President? The answer oftentimes is no. Personally, I think that the reason that Corinne Jean-Pierre, aside from the fact that you can't fire her because she's historic, and Kamala Harris were cho- was chosen as vice president, is because, relatively speaking, they make Joe look better. Neither of them are as bad as Joe now. That I mean, when they were hired, they were probably on par with Joe. But Joe has obviously deteriorated in the interim. But by comparison, they make him look better. And if you look at the polling data, the only politician in America less popular than Joe Biden is Kamala Harris. She is the ultimate keep me on the ballot insurance policy because you can't you can't bypass her. You can't go. We're going to we're going to skip over the black woman who's sometimes Asian, depending on if it suits her needs at any given moment. We're going to bypass her for the rich white guy out in California. That's not going to fly. They can't do that. But you also can't have a whole bunch of members of Congress sitting there going, Joe Biden is too old when the average age of, say, the United States Senate is, (laughs) what, 72? No spring chickens over there either. So the media is kind of stuck with Joe, and they're going to do everything they can to prop him up while encouraging him. They're stuck with him unless he leaves. Unless he leaves, then they're okay. They can't boot him out because if he leaves, then it's sort of a free-for-all. It gives people a chance, it's sort of a pass to vote however they want to vote. They can hold a, an open convention and have a big fight and get there to their nominee however they want, deal-making, whatever. But if he's forced, if he, if he is forced to drop out, the error apparent is set. It's different. So he's kind of screwed. So meanwhile, they're just going to try and make Donald Trump the threat, Donald Trump the issue, Donald Trump this. Donald Trump is ordered to pay $350 billion or million dollars to the state of New York. He's going to be, this is all going to be overturned on appeal. You just know it is. But they're going to try and break Donald Trump and distract Donald Trump before then. It is disgusting what they're doing. No crime was committed. No victims have been identified. The so-called victims on behalf of whom the case was brought, the banks, are all saying we were not victims. We loaned him money. We want to loan him more money. It was good. He paid it back. And they're saying, nope, you cannot give him any loan. He cannot get any loans for three years. What kind of insanity is this? Actual literal corrupt companies do not face this kind of punishment. They're going at him. The closer we get over the target, the more rabid and fanatical their attacks against Donald Trump will become. Today, we've got Hillary Diane, the Reverend Dr. Hillary Diane Rodham Clinton Jr. the third. She is uh, back. Have you ever, honest to God, think about this. Former Secretary of State, you ever seen or known a former Secretary of State to get this kind of attention, to care, to matter, to get this kind of coverage? She's not running for anything. She's too old, too. 
but she is still a guest. She's still in, on cable television. It's an event. The liberals get all excited. Like she was secretary of state. She was a horrible secretary of state whose only imprint on the world was making Libya a failed state that now has slavery again. She brought slavery back to Libya. Congratulations, Hillary. But she's celebrated as though somehow she is an accomplished person. She's out there. They protest her saying, hey, man, you uh, you support Israel. She was so ineffective as secretary of state that the Obama administration appointed George Mitchell as the special envoy in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which means that she didn't have anything to do with it. They recognized that her resume was so thin that she could not help. She could only hurt things as far as Middle East peace goes. So they took that off her plate. It's the world's hotspot. She's our chief diplomat. And then they said, but you don't deal with the world's hotspot. And you go, that seems a little bit weird until you realize that she was only appointed that because she had nothing in her foreign policy experience, in her foreign policy resume there at the time. So she needed the job. She needed to check that box. They insulated her from responsibility and action because she was not capable of it. She's wildly incompetent on it. So she's out there today. NBC News, of course, has the story. Former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton warned Saturday that former President Donald Trump will seek to withdraw the U.S. from NATO if he wins a second term in the White House. Now, why is what she she has no connection, no firsthand knowledge, no experience, nothing. She brings nothing. It's just, what, her spidey sense is tingling, her woman's intuition, or is it a hot flash? Who knows? But if she just declares something to be this irrelevant former politician who now runs around and is a lecturer at NYU and a regular Rachel Maddow guest. She says something and it's suddenly news. If Mike Pompeo said something about Joe Biden, would MSNBC or NBC News report it? No, they wouldn't. If any of the former Republican secretaries of I'm trying to think of Rex Tiller, wasn't that the guy's name? Rex Tillerson. If he'd said anything about Joe Biden, Joe Biden is trying to damage. Would that get news? No, it wouldn't. Because they'd go, who the hell is this curmudgeon? What do we care what he has to say? But because it's Hillary Clinton and it's against Donald Trump, it gets a very long news story. In remarks during a lunchtime panel at the Munich Security Conference, you really want to, really liberals getting together in Munich again, discussing how the world should uh, should operate. That that should worry everybody. History does repeat itself. Clinton urged the delegates to take Trump quote literally and seriously end quote as he seeks reelection quote We have a long struggle ahead of us, and the obvious point to make about Donald Trump is take him literally and seriously, she said. He means what he says. People did not take him literally and seriously in 2016. Now he's telling us he intends what he intends to do, and people who try to wish it away, brush it away, are living in an alternate reality. Now, if you ask yourself the question, why the hell is Hillary Clinton or any American former official or anybody in politics talking to a bunch of crowds about the way things are and what they should do in our upcoming election, you're not alone. 
But you also don't work for NBC News, so nobody bothered to ask her that question. It does seem a little bit queer, don't you think, that she would go overseas and talk to a bunch of foreign nationals, government officials, warning them and lamenting them and how and advising them on how they should react and how they should act in the upcoming election? I'm old enough to remember when that was considered election interference. Trump has come under fire, of course. This is the NBC News. Trump has come under fire for recent comments he made about not protecting NATO countries, saying during a rally in South Carolina that he would let Russia do whatever the hell they want if it attacked a NATO country that was late on payments to the alliance. That's not exactly what it is. They're not late on their payments. They're refusing to pay. They don't pay. The U.S. picks up the slack. It's like watching my daughters clean. The older one will clean and the younger one will sit down and start asking questions and start watching TV and start being very interested in the smallest little detail in one particular area. Like, I know what you're doing. I've done it. You're trying to distract from the fact that you're not cleaning. You're trying to avoid cleaning. That's what's going on. They don't pay their dues. They owe this money and they don't pay it because they know that the older daughter is going to pick up the slack. They know that we are going to be there, our military. They don't need a military. Our military will handle it. And they don't have to pay the bills because what are they going to do? Do I believe that Donald Trump would go, well, then let's Russia have them? No. Is it an inartful way of making the point that these countries need to keep up their obligations, their promises? Sure. Yes. Do I think it's an open invitation to Vladimir Putin to invade these countries? No. And you'd have to be a special kind of stupid to think that. But that's exactly what we're dealing with here with our leftist friends and NBC News. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Charles Q. Brown Jr., said last week that U.S. credibility is at stake with each of its alliances, including NATO, in response to Trump's disparaging remarks. Yes, our credibility. We either have to be the world's doormat or else what? They might not treat us as a doormat? Quote, this year is the 75th anniversary of NATO, Brown said in an interview with NBC News. And I think we have a responsibility to uphold those alliances. U.S. credibility is at stake with each of our alliances. And U.S. leadership is still needed, wanted, and watched. It is still needed. Mm, They only really want it if it's leading in a liberal direction. It is wanted because these other countries, these other member countries, don't want to have to pick up the slack themselves. And it's watched by leftists only in certain aspects of it. They're not really interested in the bottom line. They don't care that other countries are not towing their weight. But I do say 75th anniversary of NATO Soviet Union collapsed at, what, the 40th anniversary of NATO-ish, somewhere in there? Why is an organization that was created to counter the Warsaw Pact, the Eastern European alliance of communist countries forced, of course, the point of a gun or the tip of a nuke by Russia to align to get together? Why 
is an organization that already won, that accomplished its sole reason for existence. Why is it still in existence? Why is it not at least at a minimum, at a minimum, reformed into something else that deals with the world as it is, not as it was in 1950? Can't ask that question. Bureaucracies are forever. Progressives forever support bureaucracies. And to dare question liberal orthodoxy on any issue is a form of heresy that will get you excommunicated from the polite church of you being able to mind your own business, and they'll ruin your damn life. Because they're monsters. Have I mentioned that before? I do love how the like, stories like NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg, however, said he is confident the U.S. will, quote, remain a strong ally and committed ally, regardless of the outcome of the November election. How about you, you bust some balls and get people to pay what they owe, right? It's supposed to be, what, 2% of their GDP? Pay it. Just pay it. It won't be an issue. Pony up. Do follow through on your I realize that following through on your commitment is the antithesis of what liberalism is. They just don't do it anymore. That's okay. We get it. But hey, at some point, don't you have to step up and do what you're supposed to do? At some point, don't you? These people never do. It's all just blame the other, blame Republicans, blame conservatives, blame this, blame that. Oh, my God. It's horrible. Joe Biden comes in, signs 92 executive orders in the first two weeks of his administration, changing dramatically the situation at the border, ending deportations, inviting everybody in, changing the asylum, just welcoming everybody. And now it's like, they're not, uh, they didn't give me the power to do this. And they've got, you screwed it up. You came in, you did this. And now, breaking news story today, at least a dozen dead in northern Mexico shootout near Texas border. Because the cartels are running. The cartels have the luxury of being able to fire at each other, to be able to try and kill each other, to be able to do everything they want to do. Why? Because the United, they used to have to you know, worry about the United States being involved, the United States cramping their style, infringing on their business. Nope, nothing. They're running wild. They can now deal with all of the internal crap that they probably didn't have time to deal with before. The story from Reuters, at least 12 people were killed in a shootout with security forces in northern Mexico near the border with the United States, Mexican authorities said on Sunday night. Tamalupias. State Security, I don't even know, State Security Agency said in a statement published on Twitter, they call it X. Just, just say published on X. It sounds weird. That the soldiers were on patrol in the municipality of Miguel Allenman along the Texas border when they were attacked by, ar- quote, armed civilians. Arms. So the military was attacked by arms. You just they don't want to say cartel. They don't want to say cartel. The agency did not respond to questions about whether any soldiers were killed or injured during the shootout. The state of Tamalupis has various organized crime groups whose main activities include human smuggling and drug trafficking. Authorities say, who would have thought? Wait, there's, there's drug trafficking and human smuggling going on on the southern border? And the people engaged in that may well have indulged in other criminal activity up to and including 
trying to murder Mexican police officers? The hell you say? And you want to know how corrupt Mexico is? Mexico does our government's lackadaisical attitude towards the southern border, towards our southern border, wreaks havoc on Mexico. The Gulf side where the illegals march up is pretty well controlled, large swaths control, except for the resort areas. The cartels recognize the government's largely going to leave them alone as long as, A, the conga line of the dregs of humanity keep moving north and don't stop, and, B, they don't mess with any of the resort towns, resort areas, the money makers for the government. You can go ahead and you can smuggle children for deviant sexual purposes and pounds and pounds and tons and tons of drugs that will kill countless Americans every year. But don't mess with people's you know, vacation destinations because then the government might have to do something about it. This is interesting because this is we'll see if the Mexican government has any response to this. We'll know how deep the talons are stuck into the government. The talons of the cartels are. But I'd tell you, none of this would be happening if it weren't for the Biden administration welcoming these people. The smuggling business, the human smuggling business would still exist. It would be a tiny fraction of what it currently is. It wouldn't be the multi-billion dollar industry that it is. And the cartels simply wouldn't bother with it. But now there's so much money in it that they can't not be involved. It's almost more profitable, if not completely more profitable, than the drug trade. Now, that's how bad it has gotten under Joe Biden. He knows it. His handlers know it. They don't care. So you've got all these leftists ready to blame America, ready to hate on this country, ready to... They they just despise things. It's just who they are. It's what they are. It's how they operate. And so I've got this audio here that I want to play for you of... I don't know, there's three black kids... The kids, they're probably college age. I assume they're studying students abroad. I don't know why else they're living in Poland. They hate Poland. They speak, and the reason I'm not saying why else they live in Poland, not because of the color of their skin. They speak English better than anybody from Poland I've ever heard speak English who was Polish. They have no hint of an accent. They actually sound like they're Americans living abroad. Why they decided to go to Poland, who the hell knows? But they presumably, maybe their parents forced them to. But uh, in any event, they are not being held hostage in Poland. Yet, to listen to these people talk, you would think they are. This is how the left talks about pretty much everywhere they are. They teach victimhood based on melanin, based on toilet use, based on irrelevant characteristics. You can, you know... Any skin color has jackasses. Every skin color has jackasses. Every skin color, by the way, has, if you really want to assign guilt based on skin color and have it passed down generationally, everybody's guilty there, too. Where do you think slavery originated? Hmm? Evil Whitey introduced you know, shipping into it. They didn't introduce the concept that came from the continent. 
But to listen to these kids talk, these people, these young adults talk, they are wild victims. They've moved to Poland for whatever reason, and all they do is bitch about Poland, just like the illegal aliens who've come to this country and then complain about the, you're giving us free food. We don't like this food. Well, I'm sorry, you're not going to get a free steak dinner every night just because you want it. This will keep you alive. You want something more, get off your ass and earn it. It's a message to every one of these leftists. It's the antithesis of leftism. So listen to these black kids in Poland whine about Poland. And you could just, you could trace, you could change Poland with the United States, with any city, with really anywhere. It's the liberal mindset. Black in Poland, of course we can't leave our houses on Independence Day. We're black in Poland, of course everyone thinks we can't speak the language. Ale ja mogę, jasne. We're black in Poland, of course I'm gonna get asked if this is my real hair. We're black in Poland, of course people stare. We're black in Poland, of course we walk around with pepper spray. We're black in Poland, of course the picture for our residency got denied because we had an afro. We're black in Poland. Of course nobody's gonna believe our experiences. We're black in Poland. Of course we know every other black person in Poland. We're black in Poland. Of course a drunk man has tried to kiss my hand. We're black in Poland. Of course we get called slurs at the Christmas market. <laughs> We're black in Poland. Of course we can't find no makeup shades in stores. We're black in Poland. Of course everyone thinks we're refugees. We're black in Poland. Of course nobody wants us here. We're black in Poland. Of course it's impossible to find hair products here. We're black in Poland. Of course they check under my headscarf for a bomb. <laughs> I'm black in Poland. Of course I get DMs asking me, how big is it? They're black in Poland. Of course you're not stuck in Poland. You're in a majority... Of course you're black in Poland. Of course you're going to use stereotypes against the majority of Polish people. Yeah, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the demography of Poland is about 99% white. Why? Because it's Eastern Europe, and that's just how it is. If you're white in Nigeria, you could probably make the same whiny type of video, but you wouldn't be embraced by the progressive media. Why the hell would any business go, you know what? There's like, I don't know, 0.3% of the population. We should absolutely cater to them and stock our shelves with products that will never sell unless somebody manages to find us. You're not a victim. More oftentimes, you're your own perp. You're the problem in your life. If you're anything in anywhere rather than just yourself, if you define yourself as your skin color, how do you whine about other people doing it? Where do you get off whining about other people doing it? Do you ever stop to think about that? I don't think they do. I don't think, well... I think the part where you lose all these liberals is if you ever stop to think anything that comes after that is sort of rhetorical and a little bit hilarious. Just sad, pathetic, not surprising in any way, shape, or form because it's who the left is. Well, that's probably enough for today, I say. Have yourself a wonderful Tuesday, and uh, the weekend is coming. Fear not. It'll be here. Don't forget patreon.com slash Derek Hunter podcast at DerekHunter.locals.com. The Dennis Miller book is up for grabs. See, people seem excited about it. Dennis Miller was a very cool guy when I met him. Of course, I met him for about five minutes in his dressing room before he did a concert. 
not really sure what, like I expected, like he'd beat the crap out of me or something. So no, but he seemed nice. He managed to not try to kill me in the five minutes. I was alone with, well, not alone. It was my wife and my friends were there. All right. So anyway, enter the contest there and all that good stuff. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. <laughs>